Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of How Not To Suck at the Stocks. This is your host, Dan Hansen, and as per usual, I got two disclaimers for you. Disclaimer number one is this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Inside you're going to find absolutely zero actual, actionable financial advice. Inside you're going to find absolutely zero educational content. Disclaimer number two, this podcast is extremely not safe for work, so please consider yourself warned. All right, let's dive in. So last week, the CFA Society of Chicago had a book club, and we discussed Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project. And I have to admit, I've never actually read a Michael Lewis book before. It's certainly a name that I've uh, seen. And looking at the back cover, I can see why. Uh, He's written Flash Boys. He's written The Big Short, which was turned into a movie. He's written Moneyball, which was turned into a movie that starred Brad Pitt. I think one of the guys named Jonah Hill or something. And uh, also, he wrote The Blind Side, which is a movie starring Sandra Bullock. And he wrote Liar's Poker, which is a book I've seen on store shelves for my well, half my life. So in any case, uh, yeah, this guy, I can see why he's so successful. He's a terrific author. He could write the phone book and make it semi-interesting. And with this book, he damn near tries. That's a pejorative remark towards this book. Uh, let's uh, dive into the review, and you'll see why. So... There are four aspects of this book that I want to talk about. The first aspect of the book is, incidentally, the first chapter of the book. And the first chapter of the book I can basically call Moneyball Light. And so if you're unfamiliar with the concept of Moneyball, I'll explain it very briefly. Moneyball was a book about a small market baseball team, the Oakland Athletics, who were able to cobble together a championship-caliber team, not through spending a lot of money like the New York Yankees, but by using econometrics, uh, statistics, to isolate key variables that uh, were incidental towards player value. So to give you an example from this book, so this book was about basketball, not baseball, or this chapter, rather. I wish the whole book was about that, but in any case, the first chapter was about uh, basketball. So to give you an example of a key variable, instead of looking at points per game, rebounds per game, and steals per game, instead, the general manager in question would look at a college player's points per minute, rebounds per minute, and steals per minute. And what that per minute metric did is it corrected for playing time. So if a play, in other words, if a player got a lot of playing time, well, then his points per minute would be inflated. See? So that points per, the, the points per game, rather, would be inflated. I believe I said that wrong. So if a player got a lot of playing time, his points per game would be inflated. So looking at points per minute was able to neutralize that effect. Uh, Another, even further, he would look at the amount of points the team would score per minute while that player was on the field, because remember basketball is a team game, and sometimes an effective player doesn't necessarily score the points himself, perhaps he's drawing double coverage, etc., but in any case, he's enabling his team to score more points. That's really the most important thing. So that's just one example of the kind of variables uh, they looked at. Um, they also went into variables that uh, didn't matter. An easy one was a lot of player, or a lot of teams rather, would draft based on looks, which of course sounds silly, but it, you know it's human nature to to like people that are good looking and to tend to dislike people who are ugly. Um, which you know rationally is silly. You're not going to fuck the guy. You're going to you know pay him to play basketball for you. Uh, So one rule that this general manager had is you couldn't compare players to other players of the same race. Like, for example, in uh, the NFL, and this is football, every white wide receiver under six foot, which is essentially all of them, get 
related to Wes Welker because he was the kind of the first one to really break out in that in a, in a big way. So, in any case, uh, here are some key variables that they found didn't matter. Um, did it help if a player had two parents in his life? Nope. Was it an advantage to be left-handed? Nope. Did players with strong college coaches tend to do better in the NBA? Did it help if a player had a former NBA player in his lineage? Did it matter if he had transferred from junior college? If his college coach played zone defense? If he had played multiple positions in college? Did it matter how much weight a player could bench press? Uh, quoting some guy named Maury, almost everything we looked at was non-predictive, which is to say it didn't amount to a bag of beans. So in any case, that's the kind of stuff that uh, interests me, you know, like statistical analysis like that that kind of uses uh, subjective thinking along with the, the quantitative analysis. But in any case, so the first chapter, I give an A++++ on a scale of 1 to 50. And then it's all downhill from there. The, the rest of the book is about a bromance between two uh, Israeli psychologists. I don't know if they're Israeli. They were definitely uh, Jewish. Uh, that'll come into play in a second. And they're named Danny and Amos. And so much of the book was just hero worship, which is commonplace in biographies. I wasn't expecting a biography when I started reading this book, but that's what I got. And there's just a whole lot of like, man, these guys were so smart. No one else was on their level. You'd feel like an idiot in the same room of them. It's just like, yeah, I get it. These guys were, were fucking great. Awesome. Move on. So that's most of the book, so be warned. Uh, the third aspect of the book I'd like to talk about real quick is uh, it does focus, not not focus, but parts of the book focus on the Israeli conflict, meaning, I guess it was back in what, the 60s? I'm not quite sure. My history is not that great when it comes to Middle East politics. Uh, Israel was getting invaded by you know, Egypt and all these other uh, Middle Eastern countries. And so these two professors I was just talking about, they actually would drop everything they were doing, their cushy uh, tenor, tenures at Stanford, and etc., and would return to Israel and to fight in these wars on the front line. So that's, of course, very brave of them. So I found those aspects of the book uh, quite interesting. But I'm going to spend most of this podcast on the fourth aspect of the book, uh, the behavioral economics, which there wasn't many. It definitely seemed like every chapter would be a bio on these two scientists, these two psychologists, rather. And at the very end of the chapter, he, like the, the, the author, Michael Lewis, would just kind of throw you a behavioral economics bone, if you will. But I bookmarked some of my favorite examples. Uh, this is a famous example. This is uh, anchoring, which is, of course, a bias. And essentially, you'd, you know, you, they would torture their college students with these kind of studies. So if you gave one group of college students the following problem, which is estimate the product of 8 times 7 times 6 times 5 times 4 times 3 times 2 times 1, they would come up with you know, some answer in aggregate. And if you gave the second group uh, the problem of estimating the following product, 1 times 2 times 3 times 4 times 5 times 6 times 7 times 8, they'd come up with a lower uh, product in aggregate. What I'm trying to say is the answers should be the same. Multiplication doesn't care about order. But you were getting higher answers with the first one because it started with an 8. And that's indicative of anchoring, which is something everyone's susceptible to. And so one thing you can do is just realize that you're susceptible to anchoring and many more behavioral biases. And one way I do that is when I value a stock, I don't want to know the share price. I don't want, I don't want to know the market cap. I want to look at it, I want to value it, I want to estimate how much I think it's worth, then I want to look at the market cap to see 
uh, you know, if it's undervalued or overvalued. Because if I look at the market cap first, I want to be anchored to that, whether I like it or not. It's just human nature. So understanding that uh, is a good way to uh, overcome it. Let's see, these are just some quotes from Amos. Uh, People predict by making up stories. People predict very little and explain everything. People live under uncertainty whether they like it or not. People believe they can tell the future if they work hard enough. People accept any explanation as long as it fits the facts. People often work hard to obtain information they already have and avoid new knowledge. Man is a determinist device thrown into a probabilistic universe. In this match, surprises are expected. Everything that has already happened must have been inevitable. That last quote is actually uh, sarcastic because it would go against one of the themes of uh, their work, um, which was essentially that human beings will blame themselves for not being able to predict uh, predictable things. I, I, I see it at the poker table all the time. So a player will fold a crappy hand that had a very slim chance of winning but when the last card is dealt and it turns out that underdog would have won, they kick themselves for not having stayed in. It's like, well, you, you couldn't have known that. You played it right. But, you know, player, people being human nature being what it is, they still kick themselves like idiots. Uh, let's see. Uh, what's this next chapter? Oh, okay. Okay. Here's another um, question that they would propose to their college students. At, uh, this was actually at a seminar. Uh, Danny did a seminar at the Hebrew University. Hebrew, not Hebrew. Hebrew University. Uh, They told their subjects that they had picked a person from a pool of 100 people, 70 of whom were engineers and 30 of whom were lawyers. Then they asked them, what is the likelihood that the person is a lawyer? The subjects correctly judged it to be 30%. And if you told them that you were doing the same thing, but from a pool that had 70 lawyers in it and 30 engineers in it, they said correctly that there was a 70% chance the person you'd plucked from there was a lawyer, so hopefully you kind of half listen to that. Any case, but here's where the, the fun part comes in. If they introduced a character, a character named Dick, so Dick is a 30-year-old man. He's married with no children, a man of high ability and high motivation. He promises to be quite successful in his field. He is well-liked by his colleagues. When you make up this character and you have the same pool of you know 70% engineers and 30% lawyers, whatever the hell it was, uh... Then um, people go to 50-50. So here's the quote. Uh, Evidently, people respond differently when given no specific evidence and when given worthless evidence. So let me repeat that. So people will weigh uh, worthless evidence uh, at a value greater than zero, even though by definition worthless evidence should be weighed at zero. I'm probably not explaining this very well. Let's see if they explain it better. When no specific evidence is given, the prior probabilities are properly utilized. When worthless specific evidence is given, prior probabilities are ignored. That's actually probably an even more confusing way to explain it. Uh, It's a simple concept. Basically, what I'm trying to say is people let useless information interfere with what should actually be a very simple uh, problem. And so your job as an investor is to weed out the useless information. Like once, I'll tell you a story real quick. I had a calculus teacher that I really appreciated in college. He was a really smart guy. He used to be an actuary for an insurance company. If you can be an actuary for anything else, I'd like to hear it. I guess you probably could be like the military or something. But in any case, so he was an actuary for the insurance company before he became a calculus professor. 
And one day I was asking him about like betting on football. And he said, there's too many variables. And he started just to rattle off variables, like, like just as if he could impress me with all the variables he could rattle off about the, all the different things that could affect a game. And I told him, but yeah, those are impossible to predict. And chances are they just cancel out because they're affecting both teams randomly. And he was somewhat taken aback by that response. And because it's true, there, there's so many variables, like we saw with the, the basketball example about, you know, are his parents basketball players? Is he, is he left-handed? That kind of shit. There's so much shit you can look at. The important thing is look at the key variables and weigh those properly. Don't weigh useless information. I think I've made my point, or Danny's point, whoever made it, set out to make this point. I think that point is made. I can move on. Let's see, moving on along. Uh, here's a quote I like. A part of good science is to see what everyone else can see, but think what no one else has ever said. Um, I don't know much to say about that. I mean, it is true. I mean, the, the biggest revelations in science, or really anything, um, break the most fundamental of truths. Right? Like the biggest just evolution of thought the bigger it is, the more uh, fundamental of a law it breaks, like a fundamental uh, concept that we all take for granted. The more fundamental it is that you can break, the more just mind-breaking it is. Do, 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 do. Okay, so what was this one? Um, in reading about expected utility theory, Danny had found the paradox, the, the paradox, the the botox, the paradox that purported to contradict is not terribly puzzling. What puzzled Danny was that the theory had left out the smartest people in the world are measuring utility. He recalled, "As I'm reading about it, something strikes me as really, really peculiar. The theorists seem to take it to mean the utility of having money. In their minds, it was linked to levels of wealth. More." because it was more, was always better. Less, because it was less, was always worse. This struck Danny as false. He created many scenarios to show just how false it was. Today, Jack and Jill each have a wealth of five million. Yesterday, Jack had one million, and Jill had nine million. Are they equally happy? In other words, do they have the same utility? Um, utility is just a word that economists use to mean happy, essentially. Um, no, of course not. Uh, Danny, or whatever the guy's, Jack, rather, was ecstatic because he went from having one million to five, and Jill is, of course, irate. Irate's probably too soft a word for it. She is greatly perturbed that uh, she went from nine million to five. So, um, I don't know, I, I, that probably wasn't an example worth really talking about, but whatever. It's, I read it, and I'm not going to edit this audio, so I'm just going to continue. All right, uh, they had a lot of gambles in the book. Um, in econometrics, they like to give you different little gambles, and there's always, a, there's always a hook. They're trying to make you look stupid. If ever an, econo if ever an economist give, proposes you a gamble, it's because he's trying to make you look like a jackass. All right, so let's do it. Problem A. Oh, follow along, kids. In problem A, in addition to whatever you own, you have been given $1,000. You are now required to choose between the following options. Page turned. Option one, a 50% chance to win 1,000. Option two, a gift of 500. So I'm going to spend that again. You've been given $1,000. You have two options. You can either get a 50% chance to win 1,000 or a sure thing of 500. Okay. Uh, most everyone picked option two, the sure thing, just so you know. Uh, problem B. In addition to whatever you own, you have been given $2,000. 
You are now required to choose between the following options. Option A, a 50% chance to lose 1,000, or option 4, a sure loss of 500. Most everyone picked option 3, the gamble. Well, herein lies the rub. It's effectively the same question. In both cases, you're given $2,000. Okay. In both cases... Well, no. In the first case, you're given 1000 In the second case, you're given $2,000. The idea is that in both cases, you're uh, given a sure thing for sorry, 1500 and a 50-50 towards 2000 So let me repeat that because I've been mangling my words. In both scenarios, you're given a sure thing of 1500 and a 50-50 towards 2000 It's just they're worded differently. And when you change the way the problem is worded, the math is... The, that's what I'm trying to get to. The math is identical. But when you change the words, the framing, you get drastically different answers out of people. And let's see if they go into why that is. I believe it has to do with people uh, distinguishing between a gain and a loss, uh, the psychological state. What constitutes a gain or loss depends on the representation of the problem and on the context in which it states, the first draft of value theory rather loosely explained. We propose that the present theory applies to the gains and losses perceived by the subject. Um, that's basically what I said, except I like the way I said it better. Um, Mm, is, there good, is there a good way to explain it? How much time do I got? Ooh, I'm already at 17.30. Uh, really quickly, um, people want to avoid losses. So if, if they have a sure thing of losing a thousand bucks or a choice between doing like a 50-50 gamble where their expected uh, loss is a thousand bucks, they'd rather do the 50-50 gamble. See what I mean? Uh, probably not, but I'm running out of time, so I got to end this thing. Anyway, if that was confusing, I apologize. Uh, do I recommend the book? If you're interested in behavioral economics, then the answer is no. But if you were someone who maybe isn't interested in behavioral economics, but I want to get you interested in behavioral economics, and this book could be kind of candy-coated to get you interested in it, would I recommend it? Still no. But I did like this author, so I am... Uh, inclined to read Moneyball and Liar's Poker. And uh, that's uh, that's my review. So thanks for listening. I know this was a long one. I covered, uh, I covered ground. I'm not sure if I covered a lot of ground, but I did cover ground. So you guys have a great one. Hope you had a Merry Christmas and have a happy New Year's.